previously on Inhospitable. He said, Pastor, Pastor, they trapped me. It frankly, I, I, I find it, I find it scandalous um, that that his uh, asylum appeal was was apparently you know so easily denied. The, the 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 product that this corporation you know produces is incarcerating people. Why you know why are we doing this? You know, why are we detaining people in this way? Yeah, early in the morning was. Maybe two, they came and, uh, but I know, I, I mean, I knew they, they, they was doing, you know, yeah. that they happened to the other guys and that, that day was my turn. And and they, they came and uh, say, uh, you know, pack your things, uh, we are ready. I'm Stephen Stacks, and this is Inhospitable. Jill Bikindu came to the United States legally and applied for asylum with a well-founded fear of political persecution in his home country. After living under a temporary status for a decade, in 2018, ICE trapped Jill while he was complying with their appointment schedule. Despite assurances to the contrary, ICE incarcerated Jill and put him on the fast track for deportation. While in ICE custody, he was hospitalized three times and denied his basic medical needs. After that potentially lethal stay at a private prison, contracted with ICE called Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia, Gilles was transferred. Yeah, from Stewart, we went to Atlanta, to Atlanta Detention Center. The Atlanta City Detention Center has since started to phase out its cooperation with ICE. But while Gilles was there, a section of the public prison was dedicated to housing detainees for ICE. While in confinement, although he had committed no crime, Gilles reached out to as many people as he could to try and help his case, as his friends and community worked on the outside. Gilles reached out to the various arms of the United Nations who deal with refugees and received hundreds of pages of paperwork in detention. None of that proved fruitful for his particular case. Meanwhile, his community was doing everything that they could. A small group of church members met weekly, sometimes more than once a week, to try and find some solution that would prevent the looming deportation. Yeah, I think the small group was maybe a point of hope for me and maybe for all of us. Lydia Hoyle a member of Greenwood Forest Baptist Church, and a key member of Jill's support team. Because it seemed like if we all put our minds together and our, you know, contributed our gifts, maybe we could make a difference. Maybe we really could keep him from being deported. Um, so it felt hopeful. 
and it seemed like we maybe could make a difference because um, we had people with so many gifts, you know, people that knew about politics, people that knew about legal matters, about fundraising. Um, I, I, I didn't know about any of those things, but I thought maybe I could make a difference in some more practical matters, especially, I was especially focused on um, kind of what could we do, how could we best be prepared if he was deported. The group prepared for every possibility, from the Hail Mary chance that Jill's asylum case could be reopened, to the worst case scenario, deportation. While Lydia and others made the necessary preparations for what they hoped was not inevitable, the group also talked to Jill's congressional representatives, particularly Representative David Price and Senator Tom Tillis. Now, President Trump has claimed that he focuses on dangerous criminals. In fact, sometimes he seems to regard most immigrants as uh, dangerous criminals, but he's made that claim. Correspondence with Representative David Price's office was ongoing throughout the process, and Representative Price even brought Jill's case to the floor in Congress during a hearing with ICE officials. Inexplicable decisions regarding constituents that have little to do with any understandable exercise of discretion. I just have to say, in January, for example, during a regularly scheduled check-in with ICE officials in Atlanta, one of my constituents was arrested. He'd been in the U.S. for 14 years, had built a life in North Carolina, a prominent member of a local church, living with HIV, chronic kidney failure, and diabetes. His only crime was overstaying his visa because he had a credible fear of political retaliation in returning to his home country. In April of 2018, Representative Price confronted ICE officials, including then Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, about a range of issues, including Jill's arrest. This opportunity was the only time he had to bring the issue before Secretary Nielsen because she refused to take his calls while Jill was in ICE custody. With Representative Price being a member of the Democratic Party at a time when they controlled no levers of the federal government, he had little power to do anything about Jill's situation. So Jill's community also attempted to work closely with Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican representing Jill's home state of North Carolina. I was surprised that um, Tillis's office even returned our phone calls, and I think some of that was because of um, we had a member who was a friend of a friend, um, that may put a little pressure on the senator to, to communicate with us. Um, there was one day when you and I sat down in my office and met with uh, John Householder and Kim Barnes, who were Tilsa's staff, and I remember, you know, thinking, um, how much exactly can we trust um, these folks, and what is it that I... Um, am safe to reveal and what's really going to happen with this information. Um, and at some point, I'd, you know, there was a whole lot of, they were willing to get information from us, but they weren't um, really willing to reveal anything, right? It'd be a process of like, you know, a phone call here, an email there um, that would re- reveal a little bit, but not everything. And then, um, you know, I would ask very pointed questions to try to get answers. And sometimes I would get answers and sometimes I wouldn't. And Sometimes I feel like it was like playing charades blindfolded. Um, you know, what are we doing? What's happening here? And so I guess both, you know, Tillis and Bryce um, 
did approach um, ICE and, um, you know, while Secretary Nielsen wouldn't even answer David Price's phone calls, um, you know, Senator Tillis wasn't any more successful and they both um, just ended up receiving letters from Gallagher um, that contained uh, lots of lies in them about what had happened um, and, you know, were really not given any airtime from ICE. They just were really pushed aside and heard. They kind of got the same brick wall that everybody else did. ICE wrote letters about Jill's situation in their custody to both Senator Tillis and Representative Price after they had inquired. The letter signed by Atlanta Field Office Director Sean Gallagher detailed their side of the story, omitting Jill's attempts to claim asylum. Gallagher also told a very different story than ICE had told Jill in Charlotte months earlier. In the first episode of this podcast, we detailed ICE's habitual interactions with Jill. For years, he had reported for renewal for his order of supervision, the temporary status by which he was allowed to stay in the United States legally. Even when that order of supervision was revoked, ICE agents told Jill that he was not in imminent danger of deportation. Sean Gallagher tells the story differently. In his letter to Representative Price, Gallagher revealed that long before Jill was detained, ICE had been working to deport him. Gallagher detailed steps taken back in October of the previous year to secure travel documents from the Republic of Congo in order to deport Jill. They proceeded to arrest him only after that process was well underway. Further, Gallagher claims that Jill was, quote, cleared by a branch of the Department of Homeland Security called the ICE Health Service Corps before he was placed in custody. One of the reasons that Jill was originally granted an order of supervision was his medical status. So Gallagher claimed that this health-focused branch of ICE had made sure that this was no longer a reason to avoid detaining and deporting him. However, no such evaluation ever took place before Gilles was detained. No medical information was ever collected from him. Despite misrepresenting Gilles' history in the United States and the rigor with which his medical conditions were evaluated, Gallagher assured Representative Price and Senator Tillis that, quote, ICE takes very seriously the health, safety, and welfare of those in our care. Gallagher made no comment about Jill's repeated hospitalizations while in ICE custody. Eventually, working behind the scenes started to bear fruit. ICE communicated with Senator Tillis' office that Jill should fill out specific forms and get them to the immigration court down the street from the Atlanta City Detention Center immediately. About the time that we were fearful Jill was going to be deported any day, we had a word of hope, I guess. Lydia Hoyle. That we should submit a couple of forms that we thought were irrelevant and we had been led to believe would not help, but we were told we should fill out these forms and that they had to arrive in Atlanta by the next day. And... Um, the difficulty was, of course, these were very long, complicated um, forms and documents that had to be collect- collected. The paperwork was drafted with Jill's attorney, Hans Christian Lennartz, 
whom you heard on earlier episodes. And Lydia Hoyle rushed that paperwork to Atlanta in person, where Wesley Spears Newsom was already waiting, having recently visited Jill in prison. Of course, none of this happened without hitting a few snags along the way. So that morning, maybe it was a Friday, I'm not sure, I um, dashed downtown, went to downtown Raleigh to pick up the forms. Um, Hans was still at work, and so maybe an hour or so later, he completed the, the paperwork. I was getting pretty antsy because I knew it, you know, it, I knew I, it was pretty questionable whether I could make the flight that I had reserved. Um, but he brought it out, and we prayed together, and I took off. When I ran up to the counter at the airport, they said, no, it was too late. I couldn't get on the flight. It was leaving in five minutes or something. And so um, the agent at that point said, um, sorry, there's no flight again till 3.30 or something. And I said, no, like, you know, there's got to be a flight before that because this paperwork has to be in Atlanta. And I was talking to someone who may have been an immigrant, um, and I gave a brief overview of the situation. I said, please, please, you know, see if you can't find something. And he did find another flight that was uh, taking off a couple of hours later. And so um, I was able to get on that flight and meet Wes in Atlanta. And we hand-delivered the, the documents to the places Hans told us to go. The paperwork was for a status known as humanitarian parole. It's a status granted to people applying for entry from outside the United States usually, but ICE had specifically directed Senator Tillis' office to have Jill send it in. The last second flurry of legal work and sprints to the courthouse in Atlanta were ultimately fruitless, as immigration authorities immediately denied the application. They didn't let Jill take virtually anything with him from the United States. They gave him back the clothes he was wearing when he had been detained in January, but they took all of his forms of identification. All he had was the cash that was in his commissary fund. I think I had uh, my, um, uh, how they call it, my uh, social security card too, and uh, they took it too. Okay. So they they they're supposed to take uh, the social if you had if if you had that if you had if you have that there. They're supposed to take it and the driver's license. If you, ha- if you have it there, they're supposed to take it. 
Jill was put on a plane operated by Ethiopian Airlines, routed through Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and then on to Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo. As his faith community had connections to institutions in not-too-distant Uganda, Jill tried to get off the plane in Ethiopia, but Ethiopian authorities made clear that they were cooperating with ICE. No, the thing is, you know, uh, that, that was... Uh... That was the itinerary, and uh, that was arranged by immigration. Yeah, you know. And uh, I understand that. I think they they cooperate. You know. Yeah. They have like a, you know a deal. So, so the uh, Ethiopia airman knows uh, what they're supposed to do. Since that day, Gilles has not been anywhere but Brazzaville. His movements have been restricted, his access to quality medication cut off, his options for work non-existent, and his connection to his community all but severed. Deportation has for millennia been a tactic of world powers to control populations within their borders. Jews and Christians will know that deportation plays a significant role in their scriptures. The Old Testament hinges on deportations to Assyria and Babylon, and in the New Testament, one writer partitions the genealogy of Jesus based on these deportations. In the colonial period, Britain deported criminal and religious dissidents to places like Australia and their American colonies. Slavers kidnapped and deported Africans from numerous countries to the Caribbean and North America to live as slaves. The United States government deported indigenous people from their homelands in many forced migrations, such as the notorious Trail of Tears under President Andrew Jackson. The most infamous use of deportation, or forced migration, was under the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, where Jews, gay people, Poles, Romani, and others were deported from their places of residence to concentration camps, where many were eventually exterminated in Germany's final solution to their agenda of population control. Deportation as a concept has always had to do with population control, especially in the United States. One of the largest scale deportations in modern American history was in the 20th century under President Herbert Hoover. In what was euphemistically called the, quote, Mexican repatriation, estimates say that between half a million and two million people were deported from the United States to Mexico. Estimates also say that about 60% of those deported were birthright citizens of the United States, but were deported anyway. In the film A Forgotten Injustice, Ignacio Pina described the deportation of his entire family. My mother was cooking and hand-making flour tortillas. I remember we were eating them with melted butter. Then all of a sudden they arrived. They pointed their guns at us. One officer was standing outside. The other one was inside, and they said, come on, let's go, come on. And my mother would ask, where? No questions, come on, out. A second mass deportation took place after the Second World War under President Dwight Eisenhower. This was known as Operation Wetback, named after a slur for seasonal workers from Mexico. 
Mass deportations in cities from Los Angeles to Chicago saw over one million people deported from the United States in a short period of time. This large-scale deportation operation was a favorite anecdote of Donald Trump's during the 2016 presidential election campaign, even drawing the criticism of some of his most conservative supporters. But believe me when I tell you, Mr. Trump, that was brutal what they did to those people to kick them back. I mean, the stuff they did well, was really brutal. It could yeah. never happen today. I've heard it both ways. I've heard good no, no. reports. I've you heard bad me. reports. We would do it in a very humane way. Many of the people deported from the United States as part of Eisenhower's program were braceros, workers that came over the border during World War II to fill jobs left unfilled due to wartime labor shortage. They were given temporary legal status that was then abruptly taken from them as part of the mass deportation scheme. Many were dropped off in the desert without resources, and others died as a direct result of their deportation, either drowning in the Rio Grande or dying by heat stroke and thirst in the desert. Deportation throughout history has been a startlingly violent and disproportionate action. Allegedly, deportation is a response to things like illegal entry and undocumented presence in the United States, but historically, it has been used primarily to control population and labor. Either way, deportation is and always has been a far from orderly and humane process. Individuals are removed from their homes, detained for unspecified periods of time in often unpredictable locations, and then forcibly moved to other parts of the world. People unfamiliar with the process can often assume that deportation is a matter of paperwork and plane tickets. As in, one receives the equivalent of an eviction notice and a travel itinerary to make good on the removal request. However, the process is frequently coercive and even violent. In December of 2017, according to The Intercept, 92 deportees were placed on an ICE-chartered flight from the United States to Somalia. Normally, there are no accessible witnesses to deportation flights, but according to reporter Mariam Saleh, this particular flight was botched, and the deportees were returned to detention in the United States. While their deportation was up in the air because of proceedings in an American courtroom, 92 Somalis were shackled, with chains on their wrists, their waists, and their legs for more than 40 hours on the chartered aircraft. Rachel Peterson, an immigration attorney for many of these men, spoke to a local news network and said this. I hear that uh, things got very out of hand on the plane because they were on the runway for 20 plus hours and um, people weren't allowed to stand up, so I heard a lot of detainees were getting very swollen. I hope that uh, the Department of Homeland Security will do the right thing and realize they um, messed up big here. Aboard the plane, Somali immigrants were forced to urinate on themselves or in bottles, and they reported that ICE officers beat and threatened some of them. Eventually, they were returned to the private prison system used by ICE in the U.S. and subjected to further mistreatment such as racist abuse, denial of medical care, and assault. As of April 9, 2019, ICE is preparing to deport many of these immigrants again, as immigration courts rejected most of their cases and appeals. 
Some have already been deported, having given up resisting the process because they did not want to suffer abuse in the detention system anymore. We've already learned that immigrant labor and money is exploited in the private prison system, but immigrants and their resources are vulnerable to exploitation even after deportation. Deportation is not an orderly process, and the confiscation of identifying information can lead to theft. In Seattle, the chief counsel of ICE's regional office stole the identities of multiple immigrants he was helping to deport. During the end of the Obama administration and the beginning of the Trump administration, attorney Rafael Sanchez used his access to people's confidential information to steal identities and enrich himself. He opened bank accounts, emails, and credit cards using the identities of immigrants, he lied to the IRS about required documents, and he made nearly $200,000 off of the scheme. Sanchez received a four-year prison sentence and was disbarred. Nothing significant was done for the deported immigrants. Deported immigrants and immigrants under the immediate threat of deportation are not easy to help, serve, or even communicate with, and the United States government certainly makes very little effort to facilitate such help. In the days leading up to his deportation, Gilles' community had taken steps to help him, but ultimately the government stymied even attempts to lessen the impact of his deportation. At this point, Gilles was being detained in the middle of nowhere. Lydia Hoyle. And so we had a pretty significant fear that he would be taken up in the middle of the night and deported and dropped into Congo with, with nothing and no way to reach us and no resources. And so I did some research on um, how he could get a phone and how he could get, we could transfer funds to him and um, what kinds of things he could have there in a bag that he should be able to take with him and kind of just practical things like that, what it would cost for him to live in Brazzaville. Um, those sorts of things. One of the most important things that Jill's support group did in the lead-up to his deportation was put together a bag of clothes and goods for Jill to have to take back with him in case he was deported. Several of us got together and ordered um, a really nice backpack sort of bag for him. We knew he was physically not well, and so we wanted something that wouldn't be too burdensome to carry around. And um, and then we planned to fill it, but we hadn't filled it yet because we didn't know the size of clothes and shoes and that sort of thing. They were in the middle of this process when they first heard that Jill's humanitarian parole application had been denied. An alarm clock was ticking, and they didn't know when it was going to go off. When we learned that he had been transferred to Atlanta, we feared that this was the last step before he would be deported. And so Wes was going to fly there. I think we just found out one afternoon, and Wes was flying there the fall, that, that night. And so um, someone called and said, could I go and get, take some good, make some good guesses and get the things to go in the bag 
that we had ordered. We had a set list of things that could be put in that bag um, by, I mean, ICE made, gave us a list or provided a list. ICE has very specific guidelines about the kinds of things that you can put in a bag for a deported immigrant. They are remarkably strict and narrow, and the bag had to be physically turned in at the office in Atlanta before the deportation happened. Wesley Spears Newsom flew to Atlanta with the hastily filled bag, which met all of ICE's expectations, and he was able to turn it in. The bag was put together according to a, a whole lot of ICE specifications about exactly what things could go in the bag. Wesley Spears Newsom. Exactly what dimensions the, the bag could be. If you, if you think of it like carry-on requirements on an airplane, it's like that, like times 10. Um, restrictive what you can put into it. So I, I took the bag um, all the way to Atlanta and took it to the ICE offices in Atlanta where you're supposed to take it because you can't like mail this to anyone. You have to take it in person to the ICE office where the person may be deported from, um, which means most people don't get these bags. And I took it there. I filled out all the paperwork. I um, was given like the confirmation number, put in all of the information necessary for it, and they assured me they'd get it to him. ICE ultimately failed to send the bag with Jill, and he wound up in Brazzaville with only the clothes on his back. Eventually, ICE called Greenwood Forest Baptist Church, asking for an address to return it to sender. Um, despite following all of the rules, getting it personally and physically to Atlanta ourselves, they decided never to give it to him. And they called me after he'd been deported and said, hey, we need to ship this bag back to you because we never gave it to him. Um, even when you follow all the rules that they set out for you, you're never guaranteed that ICE is actually going to follow their own rules. After the deportation, phone calls from ICE were far from the only thing facing Jill and his community. Jill had a whole life in North Carolina, a whole life full of loose ends, a life interrupted by his detention and deportation. You know, we were the ones who told his roommates that he had gotten detained and that he was probably never coming back. Lauren Eford. Um, and they didn't know what had happened to him. And the day that we went to clean out his apartment, um, I remember feeling like we are going through the apartment of someone who's died, right? It felt like tying up the loose ends of someone's life that um, was still living. And who am I as someone's pastor to be going through all of their intimate things and belongings and anything that's mattered to them throughout the course of their life? More pressing than taking care of Jill's loose ends were the immediate dangers he faced in Brazzaville. Chief among them, Jill had only a 30-day supply of medication that had been given to him by immigration officials in the United States. After 30 days, he would be completely vulnerable to all of his medical conditions. Jill had left behind at least three months of medication at his apartment and had recently refilled some of his prescriptions. But they were in the United States, and ICE had refused to allow Jill to take the medications with him when he was deported. 
His community quickly tried to find as reliable a method as possible to get him the medication he desperately needed. Yeah, we were given assurances over and over and over again that the medication that Gilles needed, while not identical to what he would get in the United States, would be available in Brazzaville. Sean Gallagher told us that. He's the field ice field officer in Atlanta. Um, even John Householder, who works with Senator Tom Tillis's office, assured us this would be the case. And... Jill left with 30 days of his medication from the ICE facility and found himself in Brazzaville with no immediate way to get any medication, much less the exact medication he needed. So we had months and months of his medication that um, he'd had refilled in advance of being deported. So we had a bunch of it, but they wouldn't let us give it to him to take with him prior to deportation. And there was... Quickly, we found out no real easy way to get to him. We started working with a commercial pharmaceutical shipping company to ship it from our location to his location in Brazzaville and ran into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, um, often with customs authorities in Brazzaville to even get Gilles the medication that was actually his um, that he had here in the United States, but wasn't able to take with him because of detention. And we were only able eventually to get it to him months after he'd gone without medication by sending it with a friend on a plane to Brazzaville. It's the only way to get it there. Ultimately, even the medication Greenwood Forest was able to deliver ran out. By the summer of 2018, Gilles had zero access to the medical regimen he was under in the United States. After a hospitalization and days of lost contact between Gilles and his friends in North Carolina, he was put on a Congolese regimen of medications. While he has access to these drugs, they aren't sustainable in the long run. Their side effects conflict and complicate at least one of his other conditions. Gilles gets by on a stipend from his church each month to pay for rent and basic needs. He cannot find work in the Congo as unemployment is high, and he is past the retirement age. For now, he waits. He waits for an opportunity to come his way. He waits for something to change abroad. He waits for any chance to leave and settle somewhere else. He waits. So what have you uh, what have you been up to in Brazzaville since you've been back there? What what's life like? Oh, uh, you know, I'm not working. I can't work. There's no work for me. And um, I mean, uh, that's what I I, I said to uh, uh, to Pastor Alfred. Uh, yeah. Wes. Thanks to the church, you know, the support uh, they're giving me. I mean, it, it would have been a very, very hard catastrophic, I would say. Can you imagine that? Right now, for I, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm 
getting those emails, you know, you know, those jobs from from the United States, you know, asking me to go back to, you know, asking me to go to work, you know, because they don't know that I was, they don't know that I was deported. So, my email is full of uh, job offers, for example, so. Mm. Yeah, I'm praying, uh, let's pray hopefully. Uh, I will uh, get out of here. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, I say uh, greetings uh, to all the folks. At the I will. Thinking of them a lot, and uh, I know that, uh, yeah, I know that uh, they, ha- they have me in, uh, in their prayer. Yeah, spiritually, we are together, right? <laughs> so. Next time on Inhospitable, we wrap up this season by asking the question, now that we've heard Jill's story, what can we do? Inhospitable is a production of Greenwood Forest Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina. Inhospitable is written by Wesley Spears Newsom and narrated and produced by Stephen Stacks. For more information, you can visit our website, inhospitableusa.org, or follow us on Twitter at inhospitableusa.org.